वेलकम टू द थर्टी नाइन ए पॉडकास्ट आई एम नीतिका विश्वनाथ डायरेक्टर सेंटेंसिंग एट प्रोजेक्ट थर्टी नाइन ए एट द नेशनल लॉ यूनिवर्सिटी डेली एंड टूडे आई एम इन कॉन्वर्सेशन विद डॉक्टर मयूर सुरेश हु इज अ सीनियर लेक्चर एट द सोस यूनिवर्सिटी ऑफ लंडन एंड ऑथर ऑफ द रिसेंटली रिलीज बुक टाइटल टेरर ट्रायल्स लाइफ एंड लॉ इन डेलीज कोर्ट्स पब्लिश्ड बाय ओरियंट ब्लैक्सपॉन मयूर्स बुक इज बेस्ड ऑन एन एथनोग्राफिक स्टडी ऑफ टेरर ट्रायल्स इन द तीस हजारी कोर्ट्स ऑफ डेली वेर ही फॉलोड एटीन केसेस अक्रॉस फोर्टीन मंथ्स द बुक शोज हाउ पर्सन अक्यूज ऑफ टेरर ऑफेंसेज वर्क विथ लीगल प्रोसीजर्स एंड टेक्निकलिटीज इन ऑर्डर टू इंटरवीन इन देर ट्रायल्स Having read the book I cannot recommend it enough for lawyers and social scientists the analysis use of vignettes and the writing style is deeply engaging thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your book mayur i wanted to start off our conversation by first asking you about the method of research that you adopted for this book which is ethnography a method that is rarely used in legal research but is of immense value could you please speak to us about the relevance of ethnography as a method of research so i guess ethnography in um legal research in india has been going on for quite a while um there's older kind of research by robert moog um bernard cohn um and kind of the big stalwart mark gallanter and more recently this work by um pratiksha bakshi uh, devika bodia um that kind of looks at ethnographic work in relation to law um i think the value of ethnography is it allows you really to see kind of lived experiences of legal processes foundational scholarship of legal anthropology and ethnography in india kind of really looked at law as being a very much social process so lawyers think of law as a legal process very self referential like law means this this is what a judgment means this is what a statute means right what kind of the early ethnographers and anthropologists of law did they allowed it to us to see it as a very much a social process that it's embedded in ne- networks of caste and kinship and religion and you know various class hierarchies so that's kind of the value of ethnography it really helps us to show that processes that are seemingly technical technocratic um objective whatever you want to call it are heavily social and i think that's the main value of ethnography right and just a quick follow up on that mayur because uh, you write about it in the book in the beginning that how when you entered the field uh, uh, the site of your research how you had certain frameworks in mind you had certain presumptions about terror trials but how ethnography in a way sort of took you organically in a very different direction and allowed you to see things beyond these uh, prior assumptions like i said kind of um, bernard cohn robert moog mark gallanter they use ethnography see it as very much a social practice right the law is a social practice it's embedded in social networks right and i think for me ethnography took me in a different direction to understand law not as self referential but neither as law as intimately connected to structure society outside of it but as law almost producing its own form of sociality within the courtroom space right so i mean these are forms of friendships or relationships or ways of working that aren't immediately understandable by looking at caste religion structures outside of the courtroom but it's also to say that this the courtroom is a social space one of when i was working with uh, jawahar uh, as i say in the book there was this moment 
that we had an intern and the intern kind of this first or second year intern she came to the courtroom and she was like wow this this courtroom is like a picnic space um because you know family members had come they had brought food for the uh, defendants they had brought clothes to the defendant they were talking to the um, they were talking to the police officer you know there was kind of this camaraderie happening you think about the ba- larger background against which this quote unquote picnic happened like family members had been in jail for that time i think 7 years um so there's a great amount of violence involved as well so it's it's understanding that um that in the courtroom space it's a social space the ethnography for me allowed me to access these forms of sociality right right thank you for that uh the next sort of question i had was about like sort of the main framework of the book and uh, how terror trials are often exceptionalism framework is what is often used to describe the experience of persons incarcerated uh, for terror offenses uh, which is something that you do not sort to follow and you sort of say that that this is not to negate the disparate impact of the law on marginalized communities but how it allows you to see beyond it and you say that framing terror trials through the idea of exception hides this everyday life in trial courts and of course the book then goes on to show what this constitutes something that the exceptionalism framework does not necessarily allow us to see but could you i mean i understand that the entire book is about that but could you give us a brief sense of what do you mean when you say that it allowed you to see the everydayness of uh, trial courts perhaps through a few examples so i guess to clarify when people say the exceptional framework there are different ways of understanding that right so i think when um academics use the ex- state of exception framework they're talking about a system where largely derived from agamben uh, georgio agamben and carl schmidt um talking about how the law um in effect is a well i'm i'm kind of summarizing very badly right now is in effect kind of um facade against which state violence takes place right so there is um that all law eventually leads to this form of state of exception where sovereign force right is unmediated against human life so human life is bearing the full front of sovereign force and i think that's the way in which many academics might understand the state of exception type framework when we look at human rights workers or human rights activists in india that's a very different idea of state of exception framework it's the idea that we're now living in the state of exception and so arvind narayan's recent book is a, a kind of on this kind of latter track of the undeclared emergency that we have an undeclared emergency in india right now and that we need to restore a constitutional structure we need to go back to basic human rights we need to go back to basic fundamental rights so there are two different ways in which the state of exception framework is understood whereas one is disavowing the project of law that's the academic um uh kind of discourse around state of exception the human rights discourse is very much affirming the constitutional aspect of law like what is a good law so i think that that's a slight difference that i probably want to draw your attention to coming to examples i think one example which i talk about um the first example that comes to my mind is the case of masuda parveen her husband um was killed by security forces there's uh, in kashmir there's no doubt about the fact that he was killed um while in their custody and she filed a petition in order to get compensation to get to get an inquiry done into uh causes of the husband's death and so one could immediately say that this is you know jammu and kashmir is state of exception state of emergency there's afspa there um there's brutal human rights um abuses there there's rape torture innumerable like ways in which people in that in that um state have been oppressed that is definitely the case right but i think 
if we stop there and say this is a state of exception, and that's why Masooda Parveen's um, claim was denied eventually by the Supreme Court, we're missing out on the nuances of, of the picture, right? So in the book, I talk about the various ways in which she and her lawyers attempted to build a case that her husband was murdered by the police and not merely died in their custody. And I think that struggle, those efforts that people put into um, into engaging with the law is something that is valuable. It's something that needs to be studied in its own right because it's not as if people are saying, I'm in a state of exception, I can't do anything. People are actively engaging with the law. They're using the law for certain ends. This is not to say that the law is good or is um, something that um, we should accept uncritically, but in the midst where law is kind of in the milieu, you can't help but um, engage with it. How do people engage with it? And I think that for me is an important thing. And the state of exception framework kind of elides over that. Not so much the human rights idea of the state of exception framework, because that's a, that takes place in a kind of rhetorical and argumentative field, but the academic um, idea of the state of exception framework. So another thought question that I had about the exceptionalism framework, and I guess this has more to do with the human rights exceptionalism framework, where, you know, uh, criminal law should meet certain constitutional standards, but with terror offenses, uh, one sees that those procedural safeguards have been diluted. For instance, confessions to the police are admissible. But what we also know is that it's no longer unique to terror offenses. I mean, not just this, but generally there is a dilution of procedural protections across the board. One example could be uh, the reverse burden of proof under the POXO Act. So what what parallels do you see between uh, terror offenses and other such special offenses? And how do you see the book being a guiding resource for scholars who are researching other special offenses? So I've said this before and I've gotten in trouble before for saying it. But I think um, there's need to be very wary about the good exceptions, right? So in the sense whether POXCO or whether it's the SCST Prevention of Atrocities Act. And I understand where the, the motivation for these exceptions exceptions are coming from. I'm just very wary about, for example, the reverse burden uh, clause in POSCO or the extended bail provisions in um, the POA Act. I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that, that these laws are taking place in, I think the justification is, is that they are and being enacted in certain ways to um, balance an unbalanced scale. I think that's the justification. And I think my wariness comes from the fact that at the end of the day, it's effectively the state that is, is enforcing these legislations. And we know, especially in its current avatar, how um, vindictive the state can be. And once you accept it in one arena, I'm not sure how you can not accept it in another arena. I get that there, there are differences in the atmosphere in how the prosecutions against terror offenses versus um, POSCO or SCST Prevention of Atrocity Act cases, I get that. But at the same time, I don't think we should accept so lightly or be so enthusiastic about procedural safeguards when they're on the human right, quote-unquote human rights side of things. If you had to pin me down on a kind of a liberal category, I would be very much a fair trial, fair, fair procedure type person. Um, and how do you see the books being a guiding resource for scholars who are researching other special offenses? I'd hope um, that other people can take the book and see how law is producing its own forms of sociality within these specific milieus. Um, so I'd be interested to see, for example, what forms of sociality arise in 
conventional atrocity act cases, for example. Um, I focus mostly on the defendants over here, and those have been my ins into the court. But I wonder, for example, if in uh, POSCO, uh, in prevention of atrocity act cases, what would happen if your your kind of indoor into the court was through the eyes of a of a victim of POSCO? What, what would that look like? And how they engage with the courtroom process? You know, it's not as if even victims are kind of helpless people. They are um, actively engaging in in process. They have their own lawyers, and they kind of deal with kind of the police and, and um, structure. So I'd be interested in that social life as well, to see it as engendering forms of um, being, engendering forms of relationships. So yeah, I think that's what I would like it to see. Like it's more of um, understanding what happens in these in these institutional spaces of law. And my next question is sort of connected to the last question, uh, your last response, and also about what you said about victims. Um, you mentioned how, you know, uh, looking at trials through ethnography allows you to say see different efforts that people put in uh, with their lawyers and in the book you sort of uh, characterize it as recycled legality and how people try different things some things work some things don't work and in the future people pick on those strategies and how in fact uh, a lot of criminal lawyering is about that recycled legality uh, and so much of it has to do with technicalities and technicalities you say lie at the heart of the trial process and uh, one has often heard of technicalities also from the perspective of say crime victims uh, and how frustrating it can be in their journey to access justice but your book obviously shows us the creativity and the improvisation with technicalities that allow terror accused to uh, engage with the law to build temporary communities of knowledge and also to find hope in the larger uncertainty what are your thoughts on this so technicalities have been seen as two different ways something especially like in indian especially upper judiciary jurisprudence technicality is almost as a as something that's in the way right it's in the way of doing whatever the judges have called complete justice or pursuit of justice you can do away with technicalities right like mere technicalities why, why do we even need them right and i guess the flip side of that is as you said is technicality is almost so bureaucratic and so procedural that they frustrate any attempt to engage with the courts right um which also has implications of how one accesses um courts especially if one is at the receiving end so to speak of state violence cases that deal with within the book Masuda Parveen is a, is a study in that, right? How um, this uh, engagement with technicalities around paperwork allowed the state to put forward um, the narrative that Masuda Parveen's husband was an, a terrorist who was accused by his own booby trap rather than being someone who's murdered by the army and police and Jammu and Kashmir. So the technicalities very much allowed that narrative to come about. Yeah. The other one is the way, the way in which I deal with in the book is these inroads into the law, right? So the moment the law says that a um, document has to be signed in a certain way or has to be produced in a certain way and that document is producing a certain truth against you, the fact that in order to impugn that version of the truth, you can use those technicalities to get around that, right? And so technicalities become a way in which people are entering into the legal sphere. They're engaging with it in the legal sphere. My friend, colleague Lawrence Liang speaks of it as avenues of participation. He writes about it in the case of copyright cases. But over here, it's, I would say the kind 
kind of the stakes of of life and death in terrorism cases are more than copyright cases but who knows I could be wrong but it's a way of maintaining a hope right the fact that you feel that you've been wronged by the justice system in order to make your case a claim for justice these small things has a document been signed has a witness been summoned properly has the prosecution filed its charge sheet in the proper way these small things enable you to participate and therefore maintain a kind of an idea that eventually you will be released uh, another great contribution of the book really is uh, you know how you peel off the layers on the relationship between the police personnel and the terror accused where you talk about the coexistence of custodial intimacy with the monstrosity and especially in a context where uh, you always look at police as this powerful institution and you know you talk about custodial death and custodial violence in that to sort of see this uh, fluctuating power relationship that was extremely interesting could you tell our listeners a little more about it and how did you i mean your own sort of because i've heard you speak about the book in other sessions and your own sort of challenge of trying to articulate what you saw in terms of custodial intimacy so for, maybe tell you the the kind of history behind it. So coming from a broadly left human rights type background one I had this view of the police as being a violent institution right which it is right it's a violent institution police is embedded in violence we can argue whether the violence is good or bad but there is violence right and so i came from that angle the book opens with um, my friend yasin bhai who's an ex member of simi and he's hugging the same police officials who arrested him who banned his organization and so i was really flummoxed by that and you would see these another common thing that happened in in trials in tizari would would be there's one police officer who would come to court defendants families would get up they you know greet the police officer they'd hug the police officer i was really like flummoxed by this right at the same time you'd hear them say really bad things about the police this police tortured me this police beat me this police kept me in, in illegal detention for so many days police threatened to do something you know and so i was really flummoxed by these two kind of variations of police one is this friendship that you have and in the um, in the book i talk was very moving um, scene that i was very moved by about how this defendant kind of gives condolences to a police officer for the death of his son interesting discussion about the meaning of friendship the meaning of love i was like all the sitting in the back of a murder trial it's it's quite it's quite was quite mind blowing and it's for me a struggle to understand what that intimacy meant right um so i use custodial intimacy to signal two things one is this aspects of friendship but also intimacy is not something that's a nice thing it's not a good thing in the sense that because in order to have violence you also need intimacy you are you have a relationship to the other person's body in a in position of violence the other person's inside your head violence also is a very intimate relationship custodial intimacy is um kind of for me encompasses these two things of thinking about relationships that could be thought of as friendly as friendship as caring between the police and terror accused and also relationships that could be thought of as monstrous or something that's violent and my aim in the book is to think that relationship is between the police and terror accused but to think of our relation to the law as also one of custodial intimacy even though we know the law is violent that that the law has um kind of violence impositions on us we understand that we can use the law and the law can also bizarrely be seen as caring at certain times even by terror accused right so the, one of the things that came up is that law was is meant to protect the defendants why isn't it um they might not have said it in that formulation but the effect is the same like the law is meant 
trying to protect me. So one of the instances of this the, that I narrate in the book is where the the prosecution didn't file the charge sheet in a certain way. The defendants were like, you know, they were supposed to file it in this way. This is the why they were supposed to file it in this way. They haven't done it. So it's almost an invocation of law um, to protect the defendant, acknowledging at the same time the law is also the thing that is putting them in jail for the 7, 8, 10, 14 years. Uh, in the book, you also discuss the law and society scholarship and the analytical approach of that scholarship and how you say that in most such scholarship, the social can be used to explain everything that happens in the courtroom and how you think that this sort of reaches an analytical limit uh, and uh, that there is some autonomy to legal processes. And so you sort of take a very different approach. Uh, can you tell us a little more about this? I think that relates back to the question of the value of ethnography for me. But just kind of circ- cycling back a bit, um, I think older law and society scholarship aim to show that law is very much a social process and they aim to show how it was embedded in kind of um, caste, class, religion, those types of gender structures within society, right? And that's valuable because it took away from law's kind of self-referential objectivity. And that was, that's a good thing. My own intervention is to understand it as is not just reflecting. So you can't look at a charge sheet and say that it reflects um, prejudice against uh, Muslims. That's not the end of the story for me. The charge sheet may reflect prejudice against Muslims. That is true. But it's also a way in which terror accused, who are almost often Muslim, in, at least in Delhi, can use use like the law against the prosecution of the police. It's using the law against itself. And so that's what I mean about this relative autonomy of the law. That it is definitely connected to social structures outside of it. It's definitely connected to hierarchies. And in the present context, it's definitely connected to prejudice against Muslims and lower caste. But that's not the end of the story. The law has a certain autonomy. The technicalities, um, because of their seemingly objective ways, um, not to say that they are objective, but at least they have to appear to be objective. Because of that, terror accused defendants use the law in certain ways, right? So it's not just a reflection of that. Something else is happening here. And if that's something else that which I detail in the book of this use of technicalities. Terrorism uh, laws and trials are understood as Kafkaesque and you talk about this in uh, they're marked by arbitrary detention, secret evidence, brutal interrogation methods. But you sort of have a very different way of looking at the Kafkaesque nature of terror trials and the words that you use is that the law is characterized not by its transcendence but by its localization. Could you tell us a little more uh, on what you mean by this? So I think when people use the word Kafkaesque, they're like, oh my god, this is too big for me to comprehend. It's beyond comprehension. And that's one of the um, ways in which uh, terror accused definitely felt the law. Like, I could not believe, as I say in the book, one of the defendants were like, I read all of this stuff about myself. I could not believe it. Or they said I was accused of planting all these bombs. My head started spinning. It's so enigmatic, so large that you can't understand it, which is one experience the Kafka is. But I would say if you're reading Kafka, he's, I mean, in the trial, it's full of waiting, going down random corridors, talking to the um, people, you know, it's just, it's inscrutable right? Can't understand it, but it's much more mundane. Why in Kafka is there waiting? Is there bribing? Is there talking? Is there list? The parable that in the trial is all about waiting. And so what is that waiting doing? Most people focus on, you know, the door closing for that one person. But what is this waiting doing? And so it's that mundanity, right, that I want to capture in the Kafkaesque. Because, I mean, if you've been to court and I've been to court, we know that it's all about waiting and talking. And, you know, you see all sorts of stuff happening in courtrooms that are 
inscrutable but not inscrutable in a big sense inscrutable in a in a very personal intimate sense i don't know why that judge is saying something to what i don't even understand the words that are happening but it's it's so mundane that's inscrutable so the, i think what i want to capture with second meaning of the kafkaesque the imminence of the kafkaesque is the opacity is the regularity is the mundanity of these situations and uh, one thing that i sort of constantly felt as i was reading the book that often you know when researchers write about the law and in that sense not practitioners there's a very different approach but given that you were doing an ethnography and you were invested in the everydayness of trials i could see so many parallels between you know what a criminal practitioner has to sort of deal with uh, when they're doing these cases and what you were sort of seeing and perhaps that is also because you know your journey with these cases started by working with jawahar raja and then uh, doing these cases but it was so interesting because otherwise the scholarly writing on law often seems so disconnected from practice but i wonder if it had to do with the method with ethnography itself that there was so much that brought practitioners and scholars together i mean just the writing style i don't know i mean if you have any thoughts on that i mean i often wondered in a kind of a hypothetical counterfactual uh, what would happen if i came in just without having the experience of working with jawahar and i think it would have been much more different i might have focused on um narratives of violence i might have focused on which is not to say that it aren't in the book but that those would be my keywords oppression violence exclusion um state of exception i think would have been the if you had to put keywords to a book the experience of practice made me appreciate um how much work goes into the small things which i call te- technicalities right and you realize that because you know i still remember like the first week i went to jawahar with the, we were in a cycle rickshaw and he gave me this really long uh, uh lecture yeah. telling me all about what the procedure is for when people get arrested and i'm like why is he telling me all this as if it matters but you know it does matter because this is how like the kind of the experience of the trial is right as any trial lawyer will tell you that it's it's all about the small things that i think make a big difference so you can have arguments about you know oppression of certain community groups in india through anti terror trials which is which is correct but in its kind of imminent state it's very much about these things documents being filed have you signed an arrest memo stuff like that um and it's kind of that i wanted to capture um and i think and i think for sure like if i hadn't worked uh, with jawahar i think it might have been a very different looking project what i also found quite interesting about the book and we at project 39a also do a lot of research and then once you're done with your analysis the struggle is okay how do you write this out right and in the beginning uh, you talk about uh, how many months you spent in the courtroom and how many cases you followed but obviously the book does not mention all cases and there's a very different writing style to it so i was just curious to know how the book came to be written the way it is some of it is a function of how much material you had uh, or i had rather so one case for example um was is a very old case from 2000s for the entire period i was there was heard several times nothing happened uh every date the accused came or the accused because the accused is in several different places never came to court there was very little for me to go on with that particular case so i think case selection if i had to put in those kind of terms um 
happened because of what material I had. I mean, I still have lots of material which I haven't done anything with, so there's still potential like to write about those. But I wanted to track kind of the the life of the trial. So very broadly, the first experience of d- defendants are with the police, which is why the first chapter is about the police. And then the four chapters are about kind of two experiences of the trial, which is language and files. And so these are kind of the two things that occur through um, the trial, like, you know, constantly dealing with this linguistic confusion and you're overwhelmed by paper. And so these are the kind of things. And the last, the conclusion is called an acquittal because most terror trials end in acquittals. That's kind of broadly how I imagined um, the the book being structured as you enter through the police and end in an acquittal. Um, but it's also an acquittal question mark. The question is, is it actually an acquittal? So I think that's how the book is structured broadly. Um, like I, obviously the, you meet paper and language at the same time. So I c- couldn't separate those two out. But I think maybe answering if I'm getting your question right, case selection depended on the, just the range of material that I had and case kind of the structure dependent. I wanted to broadly do it on the way the trial is structured. Another question that I had uh, connected to the writing was about, you know, as an ethnographer, you're in the field. So much of it is about your first few weeks into the courtroom and trying to really get a grip of the situation. And so your notes from those first week, first few weeks may not be as comprehensive or in the way that you want it to be. And I mean, note keeping is one big struggle, right? Because how do you sort of record everything that's going on and with restrictions that you may not be allowed to take a laptop or whatever? Uh, So how did you sort of try and strike that balance of feeling and capturing and observing and taking notes? Like how were those 14 months? So, I mean, what I tried to do was, um, so I went to court every day. Uh, I sat in court every day um, and I took my notebook. There is no, no bar in taking a notebook and pen and paper to courts as of yet. <laughs> I think every time I had a conversation, I'd have the conversation and then I'd sit down and just write what I remembered out from that conversation. For example, as a cross-examination was happening or as a, as some discussion, arguments that happened in court, I took notes as and as contemporaneous as possible and what I, obviously I didn't hear everything and I could not get everything and that's different. But you kind of supplement those contemporaneous notes with memory. So you, that happens, you go back, you write what happened, kind of fill in the blanks a bit later. A lot of it is kind of diary work in a sense. You come back and you write out what your feelings are of a certain day, what, what kind of stuck out for you. Writing pedagogues would call that process writing, where you're processing what happens in, the, in a particular day. And so I think that those are the kind of two um, two modes in which I took notes, I think. Um, and the weird part is like I always, while I was writing notes, I, I kind of knew that certain parts would be useful eventually. Um, like, oh, this is really interesting. And so you, your mind takes you to these, to these places, somewhat organic in a certain way. For example, I have notes about cross-examination examinations which I do use a bit in um, one of the chapters but it's not something that I use extensively even though I have notes of all the cross-examinations I witnessed like so I think that was the process of kind of going from raw material in the field to notes and then eventually to the book my final question uh, not specifically about the book but just your own journey as with an undergraduate degree in law and then an LLM degree and working with a criminal practitioner's chamber and then sort of slowly I guess the book is so much about law and anthropology so I was just wondering if you could talk to us about your journey and how easy or difficult was the transition do you even see it as a transition so I guess on a theoretical level you can say that law and anthropology have lots in common so Clifford Geertz wrote um, some time ago that there's a the 
there's obviously there's ways in which they're both they're both crafts of place. They're both trying to understand or conceptualize things that happen in the everyday. So I think there is an affinity between law and anthropology. I think for me, one of the kind of but you know one of the important moments for me is when I actually worked with Sarai in and within CSDS in Delhi with Ravi Sundaram and Ravi Vasudevan, and they really kind of were obviously media scholars, but they kind of instilled in me or the kind of this practice of anthropology, a practice of ethnography. And it's really about cultivating a certain intimacy with one's field site. And so you're not getting at some objective truth through anthropology. You know, it's very difficult um, to make policy statements, let's say, because, and I think part of it is acknowledging that, right? It's acknowledging your own positionality. It's acknowledging your own your own vulnerability. It's acknowledging who you're sympathetic with or empathetic with. And I think part of me was understanding that. Like, I understand that I'm empathetic or sympathetic to, to the defendants, um, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly. Who knows? I mean, they may have been guilty, may not have been guilty of what the, they were accused of. I think, I think cultivating intimacy for me is, is was an important part of of the project and in the writing, right? So the writing is written very much first person, very much. I'm not presenting an objective truth. I'm not presenting that this is what happens in every court. So in addition to what I said, I think one of the so Ravi definitely Ravi the Ravi Sundam Ravi Vasudevan at CSTS and the whole kind of project I was involved with definitely helped me kind of understand the method of ethnography, going to court, going going to a field site, speaking to people, writing notes, reporting back on the notes, kind of conceptualizing notes. So that that process really helped. Um, actually, the other thing that really helped me was understanding how actually Jawahar and other lawyers actually do their work, right? So they're very much interested in what people are saying, building a narrative out of people, um, out of people's experiences, right? And I think um, coming back to the Clifford Geertz point that I made earlier, these are both crafts of play. So obviously the way in which when Jawahar would meet a client, he'd sit down, he'd ask them what their story is, ask them, he'd get the kind of the gist of the story, okay, fine. Then on this state, what happened? And this state, what happened? This state, what happened? This state, what happened? This way. And you kind of get a sense of that. And then out of that narrative, you're getting your, because laws are also an emotional space, right? You want to, you want to harness certain emotions. You're kind of corralling certain ideas, whether it's a victimhood of anger or depression or whatever it is. And you kind of begin to conceptualize what those experiences meant for people. And obviously, in in, in legal terms, it means something else. But effectively, you're doing the same thing. Um, it's just being attuned to these differences. For me, it wasn't such a big shift. It was a shift in maybe doing the ethnography because that demands constant note takings. You don't have a separate client meeting, let's say. But it was definitely um, the, the effectively the the method is very similar. Yeah, that's my <laughs> that's my answer. To that. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And I mean, I think I can go on and on uh, with my questions, but I think we'll end the conversation here. Thank you so much for taking the time, Mayur. It was a pleasure. And I really hope that we can find more opportunities to engage about uh, the book. Uh, It's a terrific, terrific book. And like I said before, I'd recommend it to all our listeners. Thank you so much, Snetika. Thank you for having me here. (laughs) 